Welcome back to the Film Experience. Um, I'm your host, Nathaniel, and I'm here with Murtada Alfadl. Hello, Nathaniel, and hi, uh, and well, and hi to the listeners. Thank you for listening. And uh, we're going to talk about the Gotham nominations, which just hit this week. Um, now, the Gotham's are one of these award shows that has a super long, or not, a, not actually a super long wait for their ceremony, but they're kind of like the East Coast parallel to the Spirit Awards, which which those nominations I assume will be soon and they have a super long time before they actually give out awards because <laughs> they always do their ceremony the day before the Oscars. And it's still the day, we Oscar, the day before the Oscars this year too. Yeah. So maybe they'll wait a little longer for their nominations, but they usually come out really, really early, but the Gotham's are out and I think they're sticking to their, they're going to be a little later this year. They're going to be in January this year. Yeah, I mean, they're always the first one. The nominations always come out the first. Usually they come out, like, in late October, so they're maybe a couple of weeks behind. Mm -hmm. Well, at any rate, we won't know until January 11th who wins these. Um, But let's talk about uh, the nominations. Uh, The best feature, The Assistant, First Cow, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, Nomadland, and Relic. And as everyone has noted online, that's the very first time a like best feature, best picture list has been entirely composed of female directors. Yeah, this is a very good list. Like, I haven't seen Relic. In fact, I haven't even heard of it until it was nominated. But I love the other four movies with varying degrees. But they're all fantastic movies. Like, I'd have to say, never rarely, sometimes, always is a movie that stayed with me since Sundance. Um, First Cow I saw at New York Film Festival last year, and it's, I don't love it as much as the, as the critical reception to it, but it's a worthy nominee. Yeah, um, I always have the same issue with Kelly Reichardt's films in that they're very much of the, the, the slow burn, and that you have to be in I think in the exact right moods for those. Um, mm-hmm. And even though movies that do that sort of like carving out real time where you're just sort of sitting with people as they do chores or as they hunt or as they, you know, make a meal. Um, it Those things can have cumulative power, like by the end of the movie, but I always find they're not, they don't feel much as much as like movie movies to me as sort of, exercises but that just might be my own personal taste um i i tend not to be blown away by them even though i find them moving in odd ways yeah i agree with you i thought it was really lovely like first cow a very lovely movie and a story that you know unique we haven't seen a story like that before something about the pioneers, but it's about a very small slice of mm-hmm. the first um, quote unquote immigrants to this country. And it was, you know, about cooking and about a cow and it's something that you don't really see, but for what it is to me, it was a bit too long. Like if this movie was an hour and a half, mm-hmm. I think it would have been perfect and it would have been because it's very well modulated and it's, the story is really, really well told, and the observational thing of looking at the characters is great. But more than two hours for this story just seemed a little long. Um, I saw it at New York Film Fest. Uh, next to me, somebody took a nap and woke up. Um, 
<laughs> well, that happens. The New York Film Festival of all festivals loves the slow burn movies. They love movies where, you know, quote unquote, nothing happens. Now, obviously yeah. things, this does have plot points for Cow, <laughs> um, but it's, it's filmed in, in such a, like a patient way um, that, yeah, you can see why someone, I know, I personally never or fall asleep during movies, even if I'm tired, but that's, that's me. I mean, it's, who was it, which, there is a famous director whose name escapes me now, who said that it's, he's not offended if somebody goes to sleep in his movie, because that means they were so relaxed by what they were seeing, so it's more (laughs) of a compliment. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to guess that was not a mainstream director. No, no, definitely (laughs) Um, one thing I find odd about, about the Gotham nominations, and I know that this can be easily explained by the fact that they have different panels is a juried, uh, nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have different panels deciding different categories, but one thing that makes interesting things about that is, for example, the assistant, which I think is a very good movie in the ways that Kelly Reichardt m- movies are, are very good and that they're very patient and observational, but that one is also very short. Mm-hmm, so yeah. I thought it was quite impactful. And and yet, you know, Jesse Garner, or I'm sorry, Julia Garner, uh, was not nominated for Best Actress. Because um, it's a different whole, jury. Yeah, different jury. But that whole, um, you know, the that whole movie sort of rests on the minute <laughs> shifts in her face, you know. Okay. And... Uh, but it's also the filmmaking is strong. So I get why it was yeah. nominated. Like it's definitely a showcase for the, for Julia Garner, but also for the director. Like yeah. this is someone I definitely want to see um, a second movie from, or is this her second? Movie? I think this is her second, but, but also, yeah, but they don't have a best director category as well at the Gotham's. They only have breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, so which sometimes explains, you know, why they're, um, their director list is so different than their, than their feature list. Um, oh, so the assistant is her third movie, but it's her first um, fe- feature. Like the others are documentaries. Yeah. And it's a thriller. Like I mean, you said Kelly Reichardt, but it's as if Kelly Reichardt made a thriller because there's yeah. <laughs> elements of dread to it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, the, the Gotham, Nominations are interesting. I, I was kind of stunned by the Relic nomination um, because that's like a midnight movie type of thing, a horror movie from Australia. Um, but critics liked it a lot, and the Gotham's tend to side with. They're more critical leaning than than because the, the juries are made up of critics. Yeah. So. yeah. so the breakthrough directors are rather blank for the forty-year-old version. Channing Godfrey Pepples for Miss Juneteens, Alex Thompson for St. Francis, Carlo Mirabella Davis for Swallow, and Andrew Patterson for The Vast of the Night. I'm very happy to see Rather Blank here, the 40-year-old version. Have you seen that? Oh, I love it so much. I've loved it since Sundance. And the other day, I just we just fired it at home on Netflix and had a blast watching it again. Yeah. Um, I have not seen that. Um, but yeah, the, that director list is entirely different. Uh, than the feature list and um, and the and the screenplay list also doesn't include any of those features except for First Cow. 
Um, so it's just, it's, it's very much spread the wealth at the Gothams this year. But lots of good suggestions for people catching up on movies because I think because they announce earlier, they tend to, um, the Gothams tend to favor movies that have been out for a while as compared to other awards bodies who tend to like to honor things they haven't really come out yet. <laughs> you know, that's true. Once you get later in the season. Um, yeah, I think the only thing that's nominated that hasn't come out is Sound of Metal and My Rain is Black Bottom. I can't think of something else. And both those are nominated in Best Actor for Riz Ahmed yeah. and Chadwick Boseman. Yes, and I, I was I did have the opportunity to see Sound of Metal, um, and that is a very worthy Best Actor nomination. I don't know that the movie is big enough for him, for Riz Ahmed to compete with some of like the heavy hitters that are coming for best actor. Um, but I would love it if he got an Oscar nomination for it. You saw that too, correct? I did say yes. And I did like his performance a lot. And the movie is also trying to do something different, like the way it plays with sound and sound effects. And mm-hmm. obviously because it's a movie about somebody who's losing his hearing. Um, it's really interesting. Like the director, I think it's the first time director Darius Marder, um, although he did commercials and other work. So it's also someone to watch. Not in their breakthrough director list, but that would have been a very worthy nomination there. Um, yeah, so I was, like, that Best Actor list, I think, is really strong. Uh, Riz Ahmed, of course, um, Chaswick Bozeman from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Jude Law from The Nest, who we both liked a lot, even though we didn't like the movie. Um, from our conversation last time we did the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, John Magaro from First Cow, who I have always loved in things, so it was nice to see him have a leading role. Yeah. And Jesse Plemons from I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I am not the hugest Jesse Plemons fan, but I did think he was very good in that movie. I can't with that movie. I, I, <laughs> I can't. Just, <laughs> that movie needs to vanish. I can't deal with it. <laughs> it's very indulgent. As I've said on the blog, and I will say, whenever confronted about it, Charlie Kaufman should not direct his own screenplays. He doesn't have the sort of light touch or the absurdist touch or the comic touch that other directors of his work bring out of his really sort of heavy, pretentious, if you will, type of head game movies. And like those movies are so brilliant if you have a sort of a different tone working against how heavy his writing is, I think. Yeah. I mean, and this is even heavier than Synected in New York, and that wasn't the easiest watch. Um, yeah. Um, but do you didn't think the performances were good, or you just couldn't stand the whole movie? I can't. Like, when I, can't, when I don't like a movie, I, like, fine. Like, I guess, you know, Jesse Buckley's doing voices and playing different characters and whatever. Okay, so she's a professional actress. But when you're not moved <laughs> by the story... Like, I don't see the performances. It's just like, mm-hmm. I, I completely shut down from this movie. I was just like, especially after the first, what is it, 40 minutes when they're in the car? And I'm just like, are we ever getting out of this fucking car? Yeah, it needed a different director and it needed some editing. It's also well over two hours, if I recall. Um, maybe not well over, but it is over two hours, which is way too long for that sort of exercise of a movie. Um, way too long for one of those. Is it real? Is anything you're seeing actually happening? <laughs> um, um, 
So you don't think Riz Ahmed will be in the Oscar list? I think he's there, right? Like he's he's close. Like he just needs one of I mean, the big actors to flop. Like what if Tom Hanks' movie is a flop? He could get in. Yeah, but I don't really suspect that's going to happen. <laughs> um, it would be one thing if that didn't have like an important director and that sort of thing. But the Tom Hanks movie, the buzz on it, the early buzz is good, and it just seems like. I mean, I currently have Riz Ahmed in sixth place, which is the dread sixth spot. Um, but we'll see. Um, but do you think he's better positioned than Stephen Young? I do, yeah. And I think the lack of Minari nominations here, if we, I don't suspect we'll see that at the Spirit Awards, but if we do, that's really quite a tough blow because it's the type of small gem type of movie that, that sort of, awards bodies were meant to are usually honor. Mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised until I remembered that when I was watching it, I, the movie it most reminded me of oddly was, um, uh, the straight story. David Lynch is the straight story from 1999 because it was so gentle and so like G rated essentially. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so appropriate, like for families, if, if the kids are sophisticated enough to watch something like that. Um, and I think with critics, you know, they tend to like, I, I hate the word, but they tend to like edgier material or material that's, that's rough and adult, you know? Yeah. It's very well reviewed though. Like it was, it literally won every award at, at Sundance, both the, mm-hmm. the audience award and the, the jury award. Yeah. And it's if you look at its reviews, people love it, or at least they wrote about it lovingly. And everybody like, and then it, cause it went to all these regional, um, festivals this year. And so a lot of people actually watched it, even though it doesn't come out till, till December, cause you know, you could just watch it online. And just everybody who watched it, at least in, you know, my circle or, you know, mm-hmm. my circle of bigger circle of just acquaintances and whatever and on, on Twitter loved it. And there is this push, I think, uh, for Stephen Young because people love him so much from The Walking Dead. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when he did um, Burning a couple of years ago. So I don't know. I, I think he's better positioned than Riz Ahmed. And maybe that's because The Sound of Metal hasn't been seen as widely as widely as Minari in the festival so far. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would absolutely love it if they were both major contenders, but you know, I've been burned many times with the uh, Asian actors doing brilliant work. Cause that, that is something Oscar definitely has the blind spot about. Even if, even when they nominated Asian cast pictures for best picture, which they've done a few times, they've, they never, also have acting nominations. So the acting branch is very resistant. I don't know why. Um, to Asian stories. Like if you yeah, see that's an American story and he's an American actor. I think maybe that resistance will be, hopefully will not be there. Yeah. I mean, I hope so, but you know, with last emperor, it's kind of insane. A sweep nine Oscars and no acting nominations. And yeah. even though the performances are so good and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't particularly think, Lee think the performances in Slumdog Millionaire are very good, but that was also kind of shocking to not have that in Parasite last year. It's just very frustrating. But but I take your point that he's a famous American actor, which will probably make a 
which will at least make a difference in terms of the amount of um, media he gets. Yes. And that's, and that's very important for, as we know, for Oscar nominations, because you have to be visible. You have to, you don't necessarily have to be campaigning, but you have to be visible. Yeah. I mean, Variety did that, artic- that article about him um, as him. He would be the first Asian actor to be nominated for Best Actor. And that was widely shared and people were like flabbergasted and that it never happened before. So there is already buzz for him, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would love to see either either of them on the list. I just think it's going to be hard to get past Chadwick and Anthony Hopkins and Delroy Lindo and Gary Oldman and Tom Hanks is all these like very big names. Yeah. I, I agree with you, but sometimes I feel like does Tom Hanks or Gary Oldman need an, another nomination? For no, I feel that way too. Win, so. <laughs> like, I feel yeah. that way too, but it doesn't seem like that's the way Oscar voters think. Or Amy Adams would not have like you know seven nominations or whatever. Sure, you're you're absolutely right. I'm just I think maybe I don't know. Just yeah. I'm hoping, especially yeah. I mean I I haven't seen Mank, but it seems people are like respectful but don't love it. Mm-hmm. And, like, David Fincher movies have not always been successful with the actor's branch. Like, remember, mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett wasn't nominated for Benjamin Button, even though it received 13 nominations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Andrew Garfield at the last minute wasn't nominated for The Social Network. And it seems the buzz in Mac is about Amanda Seyfried and not Gary Oldman. So maybe. I'm just saying maybe. Yeah. No, I'll take that because I... I'm not a huge Gary Oldman fan. <laughs> and I like, I mean, I like in, in general, even if I like or don't like the actors, I like the races to remain open until all the movies have been seen because I really hated that thing. It started at Sundance that, well, it's already over. Anthony Hopkins is one best actor. And I'm like, I don't think so. You have to wait and see what comes out in any given year. Um, yeah. And as and- we're seeing now, he does. He has strong competition now, even though in January everybody was ready to hand him the Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, that was my frustration, too, at Sundance. I'm just like, Anthony Hopkins will get written about and people will see his movie no matter what. Like, don't just say it's Anthony Hopkins. Who else did you like? Like, great. Yeah. And, you know, one of those people that I really loved at Sundance this year made it to Best Actress, and that's Nicole Bahari in Miss Juneteenth. Oh, yes, you wrote about that for the site. Um, I still have not seen that one, but it is on my list. One one movie I was surprised to see in Breakthrough Actor was uh, St. Francis, just because it feels like that came out a million years ago, but it didn't. It played at uh, South by Southwest in 2019. Um, so it was well over a year ago, because South by Southwest is early in the year. Um, but it just, like, the release date kept getting pushed back. <laughs> so it's suddenly up for Breakthrough Actor for Kelly Sullivan, Kelly O'Sullivan, who's very good in, in St. Francis, but the movie has just, it feels like it's been around for, like, over a year, which it actually has. <laughs> so I was surprised to see her there. I can't believe you just moved over Best Actress to Breakthrough Actor. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's almost, like, profane of me, but... In my defense, in my defense, there's three actresses in Breakthrough Actor. That is true. Um, yeah, so the other best <laughs> the other best actress candidates besides Nicole Beharry, who Murtada and I both love, we were discussing her the other day, um, is uh, Jesse Buckley, and I'm thinking of ending things, you 
um, Yun Yo Jung from Minari and Carrie Coon from The Nest and Frances McDormand in Nomadland. So I think Nomadland is the movie that everybody's going to nominate this year for Best Film, Director, and Actress. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the indie spirits and the Gothams will be like, oh, this movie's too big to be nominated. Like, remember, they blank, can you ever forgive me? Yeah, Um, yeah. When things like that happen, but they're like, no, no Madland, we're sticking to it. There's always one that everybody seems obliged to nominate. Yeah. Even if it doesn't <laughs> kind of fit their criteria. Yeah. Although No Madland does fit that criteria. It's very... It's very indie, yes. Yeah. But it's made by a studio. You know, Fox Searchlight is a studio, part of Disney, so... Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, like you said, or maybe this was before we got on mic, it's about the budget. It's not about how indie it is. Yeah. Yeah, so for those who don't know, the rule with um, the it, with the Gotham's, and, I, and it's similar for Spirit, although the number might be slightly different, is that if it's under $35 million of a budget, it's eligible. Um, and so most movies, of course, cost more than that. And at the Spirit Awards, I think the number used to be $25 million, um, if, from my recollection, but that was 10 years ago. And so they've obviously upped <laughs> what the budget can be, <laughs> inflation, over the years for indies. Yeah. I'm really happy that Nicole Bihari seems to be getting some sort of a campaign. I've received a few emails about her movie and her performance in particular, and they're showing it to people. So, and apparently it's already in the Academy's online portal to watch movies or whatever. So hopefully, I mean, I'm not saying she's going to get nominated for an Oscar, but the buzz could help a career and she's really worthy in this film. She's great. And it's one of those star turns where the director is in love with the actor and they just shoot them. And, and like, I felt like it's, it's a very well made movie and the director is nominated for breakthrough director, but also she was, I'm conjecturing, but anyway, she was so in love with the performance that the movie would stop and flow to the rhythm of Nicole Bahari, which just makes it such a turn of like if you love the actor like you're gonna enjoy the movie yeah well i haven't seen it but i it's on my list because i do love this actor um as i was telling Murtada off mic i just watched her episode of Monsterland on hulu um and i just she's just brilliant in that episode and um for those of you who love our uh subgenre that we sometimes talk about at the film experience Women Who Lie to Themselves, a subgenre of movies. <laughs> you really should watch the episode of Monsterland starring Nicole Bahari because she, she's a quintessential woman who lies to herself. And she's so brilliant in it. Uh, love, I love this actress. She was so great in Shame, which is probably where most people will remember her from with Michael Fassbender. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that TV show, I always forget the name of, that was based on... Lizzie Hollow. Um. So anyway, yeah, great actress. So if she gets like a a campaign, you know, as we've said many times, campaigns are not fruitless. If you don't get nominated, they still put you more in the conversation so that follow-up performances, if you're a brilliant actor, you've already had, you've already built momentum, even if you don't get nominated. Like Taron Edgerton last year. I mean, he did win a Golden Globe, but you know, he did a huge campaign and I'm sure it's going to pay dividends for him for the next decade. And we saw that with Anne Dowd famously in Compliance, where she bankrolled her own campaign for that very, very small movie, and her career exploded a few years later. And I don't think it would have without her pushing that performance hard. 
exactly. So consider Nicole Bahari. Yeah. <laughs> consider. Put Nicole Bahari in a fur coat and then we'll be talking. <laughs> <laughs> so breakthrough actor since we uh, also includes Kingsley Benadir from One Night in Miami, which he seems to be everybody's favorite performance, or at least the buzz seems to go four ways, but he's the name that most people come up with. Um, although I think all four are really good. My favorite was Aldous Hodge. Um, although he has the smallest role, which is why they put him in supporting White Kingsley's. In. Mm. Well, oh yeah, Kingsley is another one where, you know, my the best actor chart is getting crowded. <laughs> and now that he, he is going lead, um, that that's another one that you've got this block of very well-received performances fighting with very big names for the five spots. Yeah. And I hope Sydney Flanagan, she seems well positioned for, a, to repeat it, the indie spirits, maybe in best actress, because that movie I think is going to be big um, with the indie spirits doing never rarely, sometimes always. And, she she's so good in the film. I don't know if you've seen her. It's also reminded me of the actors you see in the Dardan Brothers movies. Like it's just natural. Somebody plucked because they their life approximates the sort of the background of the character. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, she's very natural and adorned. It's um, if they think if people like the movie, they're gonna love her and vote for her. Yeah. Um, and in Best Documentary, we should briefly mention that um, Time, which you were a huge fan of and did the very interesting interview with on the site um, with the filmmakers, that is up for Best Documentary. This is my favorite movie of the year. I never say a documentary is my favorite movie of the year, but there's absolutely no comparison. I haven't seen... The only things that I've seen that are as good as Time or closer to time are where TV shows normal people and I may destroy you, but time is just out of this world. And Garrett Bradley is another just amazing, accomplished director. I can't wait to see her whole career, not just what she does next. It's so beautiful. Yeah. They're, um, it's also worth noting their international feature category is very, well, it's very, uh, Kino Lorber focused this year. (laughs) Of four of the six movies are from Keanu Lover. And uh, it's also very uh, last year um, because yeah. uh, Bakaru from Brazil and uh, Beanpole from Russia and Martinine from Italy, those were all either considered and rejected or submitted for the Oscar for Best International Feature last year. But um, released in 2020 in US. Right, exactly. Yeah. So... Uh, Martin Eden, I think, very unfortunate timing for it because it's built up so much goodwill now. Uh, but last year it was actually ad- eligible to be Italy's submission and they chose um, The Family, I think it was called, or The Traitor. The Traitor, anyway, the chose, about the mafia, they, right? Yeah, they chose something else. and um, But now Martin Eden is like, now that it's actually come out <laughs> and more people have seen it, people are very enthused about it. Um, but you know, it had a shot for that particular Oscar nomination last year and didn't get it because Italy didn't choose it. Yeah. I um, mean, Mike Mead and Dean Pole and Baccarat, yes, they're all last year, but they're pretty good. Like, that's a good category. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just saying it has much less, uh, you know, you, usually I think they're a little more uh, what's hot right now. Um, so that was interesting to me that it's so, so lean toward um, about a year ago, that list. Yeah. Um, 
wolf walkers. Um, it's, I don't know if this is the first time an animated movie has made it best international feature. I'm not a, uh, a expert on the Gothams, <laughs> but that was a surprise nomination for me. Um, but I love that movie. It's so, so beautiful. Um, I, cartoon saloon always makes gorgeous animated films. So I keep hoping they're going to win the Oscar one of these years. I haven't seen it yet, but I hope to catch up with it. So it's very short. Um, so that's always a plus as well. Um, so we should move on. Um, to uh, new movies, uh, something just opened on Netflix just a couple days before we were having this conversation, uh, The Life Ahead with Sophia Loren. And directed by her son, Carlo Ponti. Uh, and I think his name is Eduardo. Eduardo. Sorry, Carlo. Carlo's hurt his dad, maybe? I don't, I don't remember. Um, but anyway... Um, Yeah, speaking of directors who are in love with their leading actors, that's his mom. He loves her. And it definitely shows. Um, what'd, you, what'd you make of this one? Um, it was fine. Like, <laughs> it's sort of well-intentioned, but also a little flat. Mm-hmm. Um, the only reason to see it is to watch Sophia Loren. Um, even though the other actor in the movie is really good, that she, she plays an older... Um, sex worker who has a, a house for um, orphans and the movie's a bad disrelationship of her between her and this young um, Senegalese orphan. Are they in Naples or Roma? Where are they? I believe Naples. Um, definitely not Rome. Um, I think they're in Naples, but or maybe a, like a neighboring city of Naples. Well, um, the thing that most surprised me about it is, is she's really quite relegated to the background in several scenes, even though it's like promoted as a star vehicle for Sophia Loren and is really, really about the little boy. Um, it's his point of view. He's in, he's on camera all the time. Um, and I was just surprised how little, you know, she had to do like she nailed, I mean, she's a great actress. So she nails her, her big scenes, but they're kind of few and far between, which really surprised me. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, maybe because she is older that she didn't want to work. I mean, I don't know. But I agree with you. She is um, relegated to the background. The story is about... And I, I haven't read the book. I know that it was made into a movie in 1977 with Simone Cinere called Madame Rosa. I don't know if you've seen that. So That won the Oscar for foreign film. And it... Uh, but from my understanding from comments of people on the site who have seen it, is that Simone has much more to do in that movie than it's much more about Madame Rosa herself than about the child. Um, so it's just like an odd way to adapt it. If you're going to cast like a legend, like Sophia Loren, um, I did, I did find it was moving, but it was very sort of traditional. Like I, I thought her relationship with the boy was like well judged and it's sort of like, the slow turn for them becoming fond of each other. I thought was really well handled and modulated. Um, but it's, but it's all super, super predictable. And we've seen it many, many times. <laughs> yes. It's like, and then like the misery starts happening and you know where it's going. Um, all the miserable things starts happening and you're like, okay, we've seen it. Um, but you know, it's Sophia Loren. She's great in it. You know, I wouldn't say yeah. not great. Let me paraphrase that. She's very good. Um, yeah. 
Uh, I don't know that she's going to be able to manage an Oscar nomination unless Hollywood feels like very nostalgic about her because it's so much less of a showcase than people are expecting. Yes. I mean, she got a lot of headlines and a big profile in several newspapers and, you know, the trades and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is definitely like a push for her, but I don't know, like this movie is already out and I haven't seen anybody talk about it. Mm. Yeah, but it's just come out. So we'll see. It's, it's on the top 10 at Netflix right now. (laughs) Oh, so maybe. Um, but, uh, like at number nine. So I don't, I don't know what, how typically things move up and down that chart. But, um, one thing that everybody should know about if they go to watch it and they haven't, if they haven't yet is Netflix. This makes me so fucking crazy. Excuse my language, but they set it automatically to play in the dubbed version. So you actually have to go into your controls and change it to Italian in order to see the movie the way, you know, it's intended. I watched it in Italian. It didn't play with dubbed. Oh, for me, it went straight to dubbed. Even though I always, if anything is dubbed, I always go into controls and change it to the original language. Um, but for me, it started the dubbed version and I had to switch it. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, they have, I just want everybody to know they have that option. Even though Sophia Loren does her own dubbing, and of course she speaks English very well, but um, you should always watch in the original language if you can. I wish it was more exciting. Like there, the elements of it, the fact that this legend of an actor is coming back and doing working with, like there is a narrative working with her son and in this movie that's it's about somebody, you know, in later life like so there there is elements there to have but it's just the filmmaking is so just like it's not indifferent but it also doesn't have a point of view um it's close to indifferent it's just like okay we're gonna frame it this way all right let's move on to this like yeah. it, it didn't feel to me there was nothing exciting about it um besides yeah, it has some just a yeah i mean it, <laughs> yeah i think I think that um, it handles like the central arc really well, but I think the other, the other like sort of mini arcs within it, it does not handle well. Like um, the boy's journey makes a lot of leaps where it doesn't really make sense why that would be when he decides to do certain things. Um, even though the the child performance is very good at the center, um, like there's there's a scene where he makes this like very big decision to you know quit something he's been doing the whole movie and it just sort of there's no way to it doesn't feel organic is what I want to say it's just like it's like a plot point um so the movie has some trouble with stuff like that I think not a great movie but I think it's definitely and I I had no trouble sitting through it and it's also short um um and it's nice to see Sofia again of course yeah I have nothing more to say about it (laughs) Well, unfortunately, we are not moving on to happy news, but to Hillbilly Elegy, which comes out for uh, Thanksgiving. Um, so, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin, but I knew I was in trouble right away. Immediately? It's so funny. Immediately, because everything is so over overdone and purple from the beginning. That's like the huge music score, um, which is shameful. Um, 
the overhead shots of, of like Appalachia, like everything is just big at all times, including the performances. Mm-hmm. It's just very, uh, it's almost crass, shall we say. So like if the Life Ahead director didn't have many choices, didn't make any, you know, distinctive choices in his filmmaking, Ron Howard did make choices, but they seem to be the wrong choice at every time. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you. Better, yeah, better in de- for, for something like Hillbilly Elegy, an indifferent director might have been a better choice <laughs> uh, because the material is already so overwrought, um, you know, sort of drug abuse and like family trauma and domestic abuse. It's like the material is so heavy and bombastic already that you really don't need like... Is it Hans Zimmer on the score? It's just like, (laughs) yeah, everything is like, yeah, it's like a big Hans Zimmer score, only it's got sort of banjos in it to make sure you know you're in Appalachia. Like, it's, it's, I found the movie embarrassing. I really did. Yeah, and the actors are not served very well. Like, it starts Amy Adams and Glenn Close as this mother and daughter, but the story is about the grandson, Amy's son, who was trying to get out of Appalachia. And so, it's set in two times, one when he is in grad school trying to go to this interview and his mother played by Amy Adams, who is a, has been dealing with drug addiction throughout the years, relapses and he has to go home to put her in a place. Um, and then we go back and to see him with his mom and his grandmother played by Glenn Close when he was a child of about 13, 14, something like that, and how the dynamic between those two women helped him become who he is now because the grandmother sort of intervenes and saves him, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the actors are not well served by it, though. And I felt particularly bad for Gabriel Abasso, who plays the lead, because if Amy Adams can't survive the sort of bombastic direction, then how is like like a young actor trying to make their mark and to survive it. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about the music, so, like, in all the scenes with Amy Adams where she's just going big, and then the music comes in. And sometimes, like, I feel bad for the actor because when they were on set and given the direction or decided to make the choice or whatever it is, they don't know what other elements, like, they don't know which camera is going to be in their face on whatever and then what music is going to be in and then i just feel like amy adams in particular was not served at all by anybody's choices from Hans zimmer to ron howard even if like that same performance could have been more bearable if the other elements were um quieter it's a very loud performance yeah it's a very loud performance and like basically everyone's is except for Gabriel Basso, and he's got the misfortune of having to sort of play the straight man, and I don't mean that sexually, but but the sort of you know, your narrator. Yeah, the narrator, the protagonist, but see, everything happens to him, or happens to other people, and he gets dragged in, but it's not, it's, it's a very passive role, and when everything's so big around you, like, I just felt bad for him, because like He's a young actor. You know, he started off being in these popular, you know, movies as a teen actor, like 
Super mm-hmm. 8 and the Kings of Summer and things like that. Mm-hmm. So this is like a big potential breakthrough and it's just like, it doesn't do him any favors, you know. Yeah. Um, One thing I, I, I thought, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, I just wanted to say, like, one thing I kept thinking about as I was watching this movie, especially because Amy Adams get tops billing. Her name is above the title. It, in fact, is the only name above the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's the movie's not about her character. It's about her son. Like, and I know it's based on his book about his story. But, you know, it's an adaptation. And I think the movie would have been better if Bev was the actual lead of the character, the Amy, the Amy Adams, because then her movie doesn't become just the highlights of this woman's life and like the bad highlights, like when she lost it or when she hit rock bottom. Like there is no joy to the performance. There is no quiet moment. If she was the protagonist of this and her story is the more interesting story, really, about somebody who, you know, dealt with all these things that she deals with. But if you showed, if it was a portrait of that woman showing other facets of her life, except just the highlights of her downfall, I think it would have been a better movie. Listen, if it was about Mama, played by Glenn Close, it would have been a better movie. Sure. Because then it's still a character who's making active choices about their lot in life. And also, this is a really weird thing for me to say, because obviously this is based on a conservative memoir. um, And it's very, the book was very discussed among political communities. Um, I heard it mentioned on MSNBC like a trillion times over the years. Um, And yet it feels really weirdly apolitical. Like... Ron, even though I'm not saying it is apolitical because all movies are political, especially the choice to make something so politically charged and make it apolitical is a political choice. But it just feels so weirdly anemic when it comes to like a point of view other than look at all these bad things happening. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the reviews, I've I've skimmed a couple of reviews, like some of the reviews have mentioned that this is made by, you know, people who don't know the life. So they're just like tourists in it, like whether it's the performances or Ron Howard. Um, I don't know, yeah. that I, you know, but yeah, it seems that seems about right. Yeah, yeah. Because of what it ends up doing is it ends up making it seem like, it's all about how this woman fucked up. Yeah. When the larger story about Appalachia and about sort of the rural poor and about that is really societal breakdowns. It's not really about one woman making bad choices, but then you're getting into the political stuff, you know, and obviously Ron Howard didn't want to go there. He just wanted to tell a family story. But then why adapt this book? Like, I, I don't know what right. drove him to adapt this book. It seems so just not his cup of tea. Although I yeah. never know what his cup of tea is, but not this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he's a very mainstream filmmaker, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you understand that about yourself. It's like his... Uh, my problem with him, him over the years is, like, when he steps... I think he's really, really good at popcorn movies. Like, I think Apollo 13 super good. I think Splash is really fun. But it's like when he, whenever he goes serious, you know, it's just like, I just don't think he has the... I don't think that's part of his range. Yeah. Um, 
I have to say this movie, like, if you've seen the trailer, you've seen the movie. It's, like, the trailer has the highlights. So it yep. basically is 30 seconds of the of each of the seven big Amy Adam breakdowns. Because right. that is what the movie is. She keeps breaking down. She keeps losing <laughs> it. And then it's just, instead of the 30 seconds you see, or she keeps fighting with Glenn Close, instead of the 30 seconds you see in the trailer, it's six, seven minutes or whatever. But yeah. basically, it's the trailer stretched out, which doesn't make for a very good movie. It makes for a very bad movie. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very... It, I, I was shocked at how bad it is. Like, I'm just going to say that. Like, even something as simple, like, there's a scene that I think gets strong emotionally, but not because of the filmmaking, but just because of what they're what's actually happening, just because of the plot, where she's driving, she's really mad, and she's driving very recklessly, and then she sort of goes into this rage spiral and attacks her son. So he runs into, like, a random stranger's house and they end up calling the police. Right. So the, it's this, this moment that becomes a very harrowing, like domestic abuse moment, mm-hmm. but the lead up to it, like when the police arrive and when the sort of family's navigating how to get out of the situation, when all the family arrives and the police arrive and all that, it's this very sort of loaded moment, which he doesn't embellish much. I don't find it, and which was the right choice, but all leading up to that, it's like the super crazy editing, like, oh my God, they're going to crash. And like, I mean, it's just so over the top, like everything. And at moments go, like, that is a perfect example of how the movie always goes from zero to 60 in every scene. Yeah, and like, also Adams goes from zero to 60. Like, yeah. at the beginning of that movie, she's just driving. And then suddenly she's like, speeding and wants to crash the car and kill both of them and I'm like what happened and I get it like maybe whatever she's on hit that moment but also it's just it's very crazy <laughs> yeah that very scene where you see her drug abuse take effect is also ridiculous goes from like nothing scene to like out of control so like you don't know <laughs> at this point in the movie like it's the very first scene with like her on drugs she takes like one pill. Well, you don't even know what the pill is. It's like one pill. And suddenly she's roller skating through a hospital laughing and gets fired. And it's so it goes from like, it, it's almost in one cut. It goes from like, Oh, she just ruined her whole life. And like the whole movie is like that. It's, yeah, and it, it's, it's a shot like the before or the lead up to the big scene or the lead up to the big breakdown. And then they cut it in the edit and just left, the big thing instead of like telling a story. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a failure of storytelling. So I blame Ron Howard. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I felt bad for the actors, but I do think I, I will say, and then this isn't cause I'm a fan of Glenn Close. I do think she survives it. Whereas the other actors don't. Yes. It's a very broad performance, but the character itself lends itself to broadness much better than sort of Amy Adams character does. Yeah. I mean, she is, I mean, if there's something good about the movie, it is Glenn Close, but I found her funny. Um, just mm-hmm. the littlest. And you could see that they're trying to do like a viral thing. Like they gave her all these lines, but I found them funny. Like when she asks her grandson's friends, because she thinks they're 
terrible influence on him to spell Mississippi. And I'm just like, okay, that was funny. It was, it was a funny joke, <laughs> the way she delivered it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, she has the best part and also gives the best performance, which... Uh, but yeah, it's the movie's not going to help her. Like, she might still get nominated, but the movie is not going to go anywhere else. I don't think anything else from that movie is getting nominated. Yeah, I think you're right about her getting nominated. I think it reminds me of Robert Duvall in The Judge because that was such an early buzz performance and everybody kept talking about Robert Duvall and then people saw the movie and was like, oh, this movie's awful. But because the... And this is going to get an Oscar nomination but because the buzz was there for like a year or whatever, a long time, just like Glenn Close, then people just checked his name and he was nominated. And I think Glenn Close will be in that same... Also because, like, supporting actress, there's, you know, the big movies don't have a lot of supporting actresses. Like, they can look, they can go to Never Rarely, sometimes, always. There's a <laughs> fabulous performance in there that can that's much better than Glenn Close or a, a lot of the ones I saw so far, but that's not what's going to happen. Well, I saw two movies this week which could factor into supporting actress. Uh, so just just name drop them briefly pieces of a woman, mm-hmm. um, which people have already mentioned Ellen Burstyn in it. And the initial buzz on the movie was so much about Vanessa Kirby, um, that I assumed Ellen Burstyn, cause Ellen Burstyn's in a lot of things where she doesn't have anything to do. And so I'm watching the movie and I'm like, he has a lot to do in this one. Well, I was like, this, I'm like, this is good. But Ellen, Bur- I was thinking for, an hour, I was like, this is good, but Ellen Burstyn has nothing to do. And then the climax of the movie comes around, and Ellen Burstyn's hand does the climax, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think she's going to get nominated, for sure. Um, and it's been a long time, so and I think she's very good in it. Um, but, so that might cause Glenn Close trouble, from, from the same perspective of the legendary older actress, you know, like, if they're feeling nostalgic for someone and they have so many people to choose from, they're going to choose the movie they like better. And that would be, and but, and they're both Netflix movies, so they will be readily available and seen hopefully by this, you know, in the same numbers. It's not like one has an advantage of the other. Right, and also if, if, you, if you look at it as like there's going to be a voting block who feels nostalgic for a legendary actor, they've got a lot of choices this year which could, you know, make it hard for everyone. Because they have Ellen Burstyn, they have Sophia Loren, they have Glenn Close, um, Michelle Pfeiffer, God willing, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I I would support an Ellen Burstyn performance. I really like Pieces of a Woman, and we can talk about it when, you know, in another part. Yeah, we'll talk about it closer. It comes out in January, so, um, but yeah, it's it's good. Um, I have have some quibbles with uh, the direction, (laughs) uh, but the acting's very good in it, and... um, and uh, I also saw The White Tiger, which is also coming out in January, and was very surprised that uh, the lead performance is very good, but it's like a new actor. Um, so that'll all rest on whether or not people respond to the movie. Um, but um, in supporting, Priyanka Chopra is really good. Um, and so if they really go crazy for that movie, um, I could see her being able to mount a campaign. And she's somebody, you know the media loves. So yeah. she'll be the high profile person from that movie. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, like a sympathetic performance in a movie where a lot of people are not sympathetic. Um, so, um, 
in that way, it could um, help her. Yeah. And like speaking of like the narrative of the overdue, like uh, people are like, I read some of the reviews of Hillbilly Elegy. One of them was very scathing on Amy Adams. And I didn't, it, it went on, it's like, just give her the Oscar so that she doesn't have to do this again. And I'm like, I know we who love Oscars and awards talk about these actresses and overdue and we mm-hmm. build that narrative for them. But I don't think like Amy Adams was in this Ron Howard set thinking, oh, this is my Oscar. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't think so. So she just chooses um, from what is offered to her or what she's able to do. You know, she's one of the top actresses. So she has a lot of opportunity, but I don't think she's like, She's sitting there being like, where is my Oscar? Which is what <laughs> she's being portrayed in online and in, even in the critical writing about this movie, which is just like for somebody who's acting, I really love. I love Amy Adams. She's a great actor. So it's just disheartening to see that that's her narrative this year. Especially with like she has the woman in the window, which like it's never coming out apparently or whatever. Right, right. She's at a low point in her career, but, you know, she's still a top actress and an amazing actress. Like, so I'm sure she'll be back. And and the whole thing about, like, this person's overdue, the people who are really obsessed with Oscar and who say that a lot, like us, we don't actually want them to win for bad performances. No, never. I would rather you get an honorary than win for a bad performance. Yeah. And especially somebody with a legendary career. Like, Amy Adams is still in the middle of her career. She could have other legendary performances still coming, but somebody like Glenn Close, whose legendary performances were in the eighties and we love them so much and movies that people still talk about 30, 40 years after they were made, you know, they're still in the culture Things like fatal attraction, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the big chill and all these movies that she was nominated for. Dangerously yeah, is yeah. Dangerously is like, if she wins for this stupid Ron Howard movie, like, come on. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I, I, that's my thing with Glenn Close. I'm like, give her an honorary, you know, if you're, if you're really not going to reward her when she's, I thought she was, I realize this kind of minority opinion. I thought she was brilliant in the wife. Brilliant. She was brilliant, but Olivia Coleman was brilliant too. Um, so, but if you're not going to give it to her for a, such a strong performance when she has all the narrative and all that, just give her an honorary and like be done with it. Yeah. And she's in her seventies. She's eligible. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So, but I do think I still do think, despite the scathing reviews, I think she still has a good shot at a nomination. Only to lose to Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It's early still. It's just uh, November, and the Oscars aren't until April. So, yeah, totally. I'm just kidding. But that's like yeah, the I, narrative today, November thirteenth or fifteenth or whatever date. <laughs> the date is today. <laughs> Guess what else I saw? Since we have a couple more minutes. Sure, what's up? Which one? Mulan. I finally saw Mulan. <laughs> oh. Um, Did you like it? Mm, no. But, I mean, I feel bad like everything we reviewed today. I'm like, eh. Um, of all the things we talked about today, I like First Cow best. But even that, I'm like not in the, like, it's a masterpiece camp. But, um. Mulan was just very, like, flat, which is a little bit weird because, like, I understand why I always have that reaction with their live-action remakes where they sort of just carbon copy the original. Obviously, this time they did not because it's not a musical. They changed the story a lot. Um, But it still has this sort of, like, very 
drab drama around it. It's like all very telegraphed and very by the numbers. Um, and I didn't think Mulan herself was really good, which is a problem. Like I didn't, you know, you know me, I'm all for shiny charismatic actresses. So I'm like rooting for it every time, especially with new people. Um, how was Gong Lee? I mean, Gong Lee was Gong Lee. So of course I was, I was gripped every time she was on screen, but she's, you know, the villain and like, um, and like Chima, Chima is the dad and he's very good. Like he always is. And Gong Lee is great. Like she always is. And Jason Scott Lee is entertaining. Like he always is. So it's like all these big stars are in it and they're totally like very screen charismatic, you know? Mm-hmm. proven ability to do that. And I just thought Mulan herself was kind of like lacking in movie star charisma, um, which for me was a huge problem for it. Um, and then, but it did have cool costumes and makeup. I think they could get a couple Oscar nominations. For costumes and makeup? Yeah. Or maybe other tech stuff. Like if, if, if the Oscars aren't feeling you know, who knows, who knows how people are going to be feeling in February when they <laughs> vote on things. Yeah. Um, I haven't but, yeah. seen it, so I have nothing to add. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Um, I just wanted to mention that I'd finally seen it because uh, it does come out on Disney Plus without the $30 price tag in a couple weeks, or a few weeks. Um, um, so you can finally see it. I do want to say one last thing about Hillbilly Elegy. I think the only person who did their job in this movie well is the casting director. Her name is Carmen Cuba because she found two actors who could look like the same person at different ages. Oh, totally, yeah. They look like, yes, this actor could grow up to to look like this. It was perfect and it was seamless and you could see it in the way they moved and the way they looked, mostly the way they looked, which is why I'm crediting the casting director. Yeah, and also because they aren't famous too, so the casting director had to like work work to do that. You know, <laughs> it's not like it's a package from CAA. Like here's here's Amy Adams, and if you get Amy Adams, you also have to have the star or whatever. You know, yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, yeah, Carmen Cuba is very good though in general. Like she's one of the top casting directors. Um. So yeah, that's that's all we have to say this this week. Um, movies have such a bizarre release schedule that who knows uh, when we'll have new things to talk about. But Mank is coming out very soon, um, and uh, and then in December, of course, there's a lot. Yes. So thank you for listening, and we'll keep you posted. And when we'll be back, there are I'm excited for Promising Young Woman to come. But that's the movie I saw Everything. in January. Well, you saw yeah, it too, so that's everything's Christmas. Everything's Christmas, yeah. basically. All the release dates now are Christmas. Yeah. Um, so, but before then, before then, we get Mink and um, Sound of Metal, um, which I'm excited for people to see because I think Reese is fabulous in it. Um, and I also think Olivia Cook, who is getting a campaign as well, I think she's very good as his girlfriend in the movie. Um, so, yeah, there there is good stuff good stuff coming out. It's just Hillbilly Elegy is not one of, part of that <laughs> umbrella of films. <laughs> it is not good stuff. Definitely not. Thanks for listening.